ESG. Three simple letters, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. According to Morningstar's U.S. Sustainable Fund Landscape Report in February, the industry has seen assets in ESG funds swell from approximately five, uh, $50 billion in 2015 to over $250 billion currently. And in, two, in 2020 alone, flows eclipsed $50 billion. So what is ESG investing? How has it evolved over the years? And why should you consider it today for your portfolio? Hello, and welcome to the Portfolio Intelligence Podcast. Today's date is September 1st, 2021. And I'm your host, John Bryson, Head of Investment Consulting and Education Savings at John Hancock Investment Management. To help me answer those questions uh, and more, I've invited two ESG experts and industry and veterans to the podcast. First is Cheryl Smith of Trillium Asset Management and manager of the John Hancock ESG Large Cap Core Fund. For nearly 40 years, Trillium has been at the forefront of ESG thought leadership and draws from decades of experience focused exclusively on responsible investing. Second is Matt Zalosh of Boston Common Asset Management and Portfolio Manager of the John Hancock ESG International Equity Fund. Boston Common Asset Management, founded in 2003, is an experienced investment manager and leader in global impact initiatives dedicated to the pursuit of financial return and social change. Cheryl and Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Hi, John. I appreciate the opportunity today. Excellent. Cheryl, I'm going to start with you. I want to start with a definition of ESG investing. How do you define it? We would define it as, uh, from a broad perspective, as using a variety of extra financial information to gain investing insights to generate long-term competitive financial returns and positive societal impact. More specifically, looking at companies' environmental, social, and governance characteristics to form a view on company management's approach to risk management and their awareness of broader social and environmental opportunities, so both risk and opportunity. We use this information to guide our analysis of the risks that companies face and to understand how prepared companies are to meet those risks. For example, is a company management reactive or proactive? Is a company positioned to act on opportunities stemming from broad environmental, economic, and social trends? The goal of ESG investing is to use these investment insights to construct portfolios of companies that generate competitive returns at appropriate levels of risk, which also contribute positively to a sustainable and more equitable economy. So Matt, to bring you into the conversation, we throw around terms like ESG. Cheryl mentioned environmental, social, and governance. Can you give us some examples, some real-world examples for us to bring to advisors and to clients? Sure, happy to. And, and I'll follow on to Cheryl's idea of framing opportunities and risks. And, and so you could talk about the, the negative uh, examples, uh, but I prefer to talk about the positive. So, so that's, that's where I'm going to really focus on in, in my um, overview of, of the three main uh, aspects, environmental, social, and governance. So, so E is the, is the first letter in the acronym, and we do think that it, environmental factors are really the, the leading issue with regard to the market. Um, the clear example is, is renewable energy uh, on the positive side again. So looking for uh, companies that are um, selling wind or solar power uh, equipment or services and, and uh, in terms of how a company operates internally. So really using renewable energy uh, as, as a, the source of electricity for their operations. 
another area would be recycling or resource efficiency in general. That's been an area that we found a lot of interesting companies that are less obvious, uh, especially in the industrial material sectors. And naturally, as we look at how a company operates, we're looking for uh, the companies that have a, a, a smaller carbon footprint and uh, really looking for uh, solutions to envir our environmental challenges, most notably climate change. As we move on to, to the social issues, uh, we're looking for companies that products are really promote health and well-being for all key stakeholders. And that, that goes from customers to employees, as well as the, the local communities where companies operate. And so examples of a, a, a positive business, business in this area would be microfinance uh, and affordable housing. So businesses that we think really promote economic mobility, especially in places like emerging markets. And again, we're, we're also looking for companies to really treat their employees like they're, that they're an asset as opposed to a cost and really that long-term investment aspect of, um, of how they handle their, their employees. And then from a governance standpoint, uh, we're looking for management that are, that are long-term oriented and visionary and, and are looking to incorporate ESG into their strategy, again, from both a risk management and an opportunity standpoint, and also being mindful of minority shareholders and how they run the business. Uh, so specific factors we're looking for there would be diversity, so diversity uh, as well as the independence of the board, as well as management. Uh, and then there are other tr more traditional uh, governance issues like corporate structures, separating CEO and chairman, uh, and looking at uh, compensation plans. So those, those are a few examples of what we're looking for from a governance perspective. Thanks, Matt. Now, Cheryl, a lot of the concepts that Matt had just mentioned are very relevant in 2021, but ESG investing didn't start recently. It's been around for decades. Can you talk to us about how and why ESG investing started? Sure. And uh... I think that we could certainly draw from the concepts that Matt talked about um, and bring them back considerably further. But I would say ESG investing is an evolution from a longer term trend in sustainable investing. And I'll date sustainable investing back to the 1970s, uh, really arising from a concern from investors and owners about the impact of corporate action um, and sustainable investing seeks to build a more sustainable and equitable economy grounded in the recognition of the responsibility of asset owners for the actions of the companies that they own. So we're thinking um, South Africa divestment or uh, motivated by the Vietnam War, concerned by investors that they were participating in uh, sustaining the Vietnam War. Those would be issues and also the um, uh, racial injustice and uh, evolution from the 1960s to the 1970s, a lot of investors very concerned about disinvestment in city centers. So those are sort of longstanding conditions. Now this connection between asset owners and the responsibility for the actions of companies that we as investors own can be extremely diffuse. And what sustainable investing seeks to do is to strengthen that connection by analysis of these environmental, social and governance factors, and then use that information for shareholder engagement, that is causing companies to behave differently using that ownership control, however attenuated it is to cause better corporate action and active proxy voting. So as sustainable investors starting in the 70s and 80s, the 80s when uh, Trillium was formed, 
began to build a performance track record that demonstrated that competitive investment performance can be maintained and even enhanced with the use of sustainable investment techniques, the interest in the use of these factors increased. And yet it, may, it really did not spread into the, let's call institutional investment world. With a change into the language of ESG investing and a focus a little bit more on the risk and opportunities which fits within a framework of fiduciary responsibility and fiduciary duty, we have seen an expansion of the field and the interest and the willingness of investors to participate. Because by shifting that emphasis onto risk avoidance and risk management, emphasizing that the use of that ESG information is entirely consistent with good fiduciary practice. So it's been a, um, a little bit of a shifting from the impact and intent into the tools over time. And now that ESG framework is really a, a, a tools-based approach at looking at it. Excellent. And, and Matt, Cheryl said that this you know, has been around since the 60s. Talk about more recently and how the industry has evolved from the early days. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll follow on with Cheryl. And I, I think um, what we have found is really a shift from the, the values-oriented negative screening aspect of, of ESG investing over towards more the, the opportunity-seeking positive screening, uh, which Cheryl mentioned. And so, so what we think is that that has been uh, uh, coincident with the increased interest from investors, increased interest from other uh, companies, other investment firms, as well as increased data provided by third-party vendors, which we all view, uh, we view favorably as, as that has been uh, garnered significant more uh, attention to the issues overall. And we, we find it helpful to have more information when we're doing our own independent ESG judgment. Uh, so, so that I think has been the, the key area. Now, the way we think about our work is the other aspect is that we've, we're, we're more focused on the, the product. So the, the revenue generating aspect of a business uh, relative to the process and policies, we still look at those issues, but the emphasis has evolved uh, for, for, we think the industry uh, closer towards uh, our uh, approach, our intention uh, to really uh, on a relative basis, um, um, we think some of the some of the historically has been uh, overemphasizing the process and policies, transparency relative to the products uh, that a business is is uh, um, is is selling. Excellent. And Cheryl, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast the explosive growth we're seeing right now, and you had mentioned um, a, a bit of a shift, if you will, from it's 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 not only the right thing to do, it's it's also driving performance. And I also talked and we talked about how it's, it's some of the catchphrases are popular now in, in 2021. So many people are focused more on the environment, the social impacts, social injustice, et cetera. So what is it that's really making and, and um, allowing ESG investing to gain traction? Is it a little bit of all of the above? Is there anything specific that stands out to you? As I thought, I think about this, there's really uh, four areas that I think we can talk about. And one is that performance record. So, you know, 40 years of doing this establishes that it's possible. So early years in the field, uh, both Matt and I know you go into an investment meeting like, yeah, you can't possibly do this without losing money. It's like that's been established. So we can put that aside. Um, and there are academic studies upon academic studies upon academic studies that indicate that this is possible. And they show not only that looking at these 
processes and policies from Matt's point of view, but also the product opportunities um, leads to sort of better accounting returns, but also that's not fully captured by the market and leads to better stock price performance as well. So there's a performance element. Second element is demographics. Um, in a world where women and millennial millennials are increasingly having wealth that they control, it's an area of interest. So 87% of millennials consider environmental, social, and governance factors important in terms of how they want to invest. And 64% of high net worth women think of that as important. So as you have these two demographic factors become an increasingly large part of the investor universe, these factors become important and it's important for advisors to be able to show products to these um, parts of their client base that are important. Third, I would say there's a growing awareness of the importance of environmental and social factors. Um, it's September 1st, 2021, Hurricane Ida was two or three days ago. Very difficult to ignore the focus of extreme weather, difficult to ignore global climate change, difficult to ignore global income inequality and uh, racial injustice. These are sort of areas that, you know, 20 years ago, you could maybe pretend didn't happen or not look at. And they're sort of increasingly important and increasingly having financial impact. And so investors start thinking about how to grapple with and how to deal with this. And then there's an institutional element. For example, uh, the European Union's actions on climate change are really changing the playing field for uh, companies. Now, you might think that that affects Matt's companies more because in the, in the international field, but when you look at the United States, the S&P 500, you know, a huge amount of the S&P 500 revenues come from international. So any company that wants to maintain competitiveness internationally has to look at what the European Union is doing in terms of their own policies, practices, and products. So all of those are important. And then I just sort of second on what Matt said earlier about the growing data availability, making this also more possible. Excellent. Uh, the right combination of good performance for the investor, good performance for the company, a social awareness, I'll call it, and then the government's awareness. And then the data, you lay the data on top of it, it makes it more uh, um, transparent for investors. Now, because of the success of ESG options, because of your leadership, there are more and more options available today. Um, some of them are pure approaches like yourself. Some of them have different approaches. Some even you'd call greenwashing. Matt, talk to us about the types of options available for investors today and what they should maybe look for. Yeah, there, there are a lot more options, which we, we view favorably for um, investors that are interested in, in these issues. And uh, you could start from the, the, the basic asset class as, as uh, well, we think that there's been a broadening of, of um, types of ESG investing in different equity spaces and even on the fixed income side. Uh, then from a, an active management versus passive, there, there are new funds that are um, index oriented or passive ESG funds out there. And then um, drilling down a little bit further, you have more focus. So kind of the opposite of, of the passive side, which would be more thematic oriented funds. That would be funds that are purely focused on environmental issues, for instance, or social issues, specifically gender funds. I'm aware of uh, some funds that are out there just uh, looking at gender issues. And, and then the last one would be really the 
uh, than the engagement side. Uh, there are some companies, especially on the passive side, that do a, uh, an overlay more on, on, in terms of engagement and talking with management. And then there are other funds, like again, like Boston Common and Trillium, that are, are far more integrated in their approach and active in their uh, engagement in their portfolio companies uh, that has a, a longer term, uh, a, 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 I would say a more dedicated initiative with the engagement to incorporate ESG factors into the uh, the management of companies. Got it. Now, I want to understand a little bit more as you lay out this spectrum, where does Trillium and Boston Common fall? Um, I will say, and I'm sure I'm going to start with you, like, how do you, how do you incorporate ESG principles into your fundamental uh, investing approach? Give us some of the details. And the quick side story I want to highlight is the first time I walked into your office, you were the first firm that had served water in glasses, not plastic bottles. And I thought initially, oh, that's, that's a nice touch, that's classy. But then it dawned on me throughout the conversation, there was a real purpose to it. It was because you do not, you want to live uh, what you preach. You want to practice what you preach. You did not want to contribute to the problem of plastic. You'd said, we're going to go a different approach. We're going to serve everyone who joins us uh, with a glass of water instead. So I was, I was impressed on how thorough it was. So can you kind of tie that kind of concept that you live and breathe it? And how does that fit into your fundamental investing approach? John, I'm so pleased that you noticed that. And uh, we do live it and breathe it. And you'd find that we actually use real plates and real flatware too. <laughs> so not just the glasses, but actually even the dishes. But in terms of how we incorporate these overall principles into the fundamental investing, uh, one of the things that we feel is a very important principle at Trillium is that our process is an integrated process. So we divide our um, industry coverage on a sector basis. So we have sector analysts and our sector analysts are responsible not only for the fundamental analysis of the companies on the buy list and the companies in their sector, but also for the ESG analysis. And we feel that that's important because the looking at the environmental, social and governance factors for companies and that environmental, social governance opportunity and product opportunity is really important information. So there are a number of firms that have a, um, a siloed approach where one group you know, uh, qualifies companies for investment, thumbs up, thumbs down, you can include it or you can't include it, or gives it just a ranking and the portfolio managers have to put that in place. We feel that loses a lot of information. Our, we want our sector analysts to understand that. So our process is that we use uh, a materiality assessment on an industry by industry basis. We assess what issues for that industry are most important and then decide what performance indicators we can use to differentiate between companies on those issue areas. We rank the companies in an industry and then hopefully are choosing among the better performing companies as we do our fundamental analysis. A lot of people say, you know, which do you do first? Do you do the ESG first or the fundamental first? And my answer to that is it is a both end process. If I'm going to select for round orange objects, it doesn't matter if I sort by round first or if I sort by orange first, if, as long as I do both sortings, I'm gonna get both. So we're looking for companies that are attractive on a fundamental basis, but also meet our ESG criteria. And that ESG information that we get in that materiality ranking is then incorporated into our fundamental analysis and valuation. So for example, um, does better governance lower risk? 
does a seizing any uh, environmental opportunity affect the prospective growth rate? Um, or does treating employees as an asset rather than a cost affect the cost structure, all elements that we've just talked about. Those are important elements in the valuation. So we believe that ESG information is additive. So we are integrating it and it extends throughout our process through everything that we do. Excellent, thank you, Cheryl. Matt, I know that the folks at Boston Common like yourself are just as passionate Tell me how you incorporate these ESG principles into your fundamental approach. Yeah, glad to. And, and I'll, I'll try to highlight some similarities where there are several with, with Trillium and, and a few differences. So um, the, 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 the core tenant uh, of our philosophy is, is built on integrating ESG just as it is at Trillium. So, so that uh, we are uh, holistically aligned. Uh, and, and likewise, we, we are looking at the, at the sector level to understand what, what are the most important or the most material issues from an ESG perspective uh, and really educating the whole investment team uh, to, to, to be cognizant of those trends, look for companies that are beneficiaries and, and avoid the companies that are at risk related to some of these key SG trends at the sector and industry level. Uh, and then we, we incorporate, we have a database of our historical ESG analysis of companies and, and that is uh, incorporated into our own proprietary quantitative tool, which helps us to, to screen the overall universe. So that's really the, the first stage where ESG is, is built into the process. Uh, the, the second stage is really looking for from an idea generation perspective. So looking for companies that are benefiting from some of the sustainability trends, uh, specifically an area would be electric vehicles. And, and here is where our uh, comprehensive analytical work would go cut across different sectors. So we're looking at the whole supply chain for what are the most attractive investment ideas uh, with relate that are benefiting from this long-term trend, long-term issues. Uh, and then at, at, the, at the stock level, and here's where to highlight a difference, we do have a, a dedicated ESG team that really specializes on the ESG um, research. And so we believe in specialization. Uh, we have specialized sector anal analysts, and we also have uh, a specialized ESG team just to focus on ESG analysis. And so that team will, will write an independent report highlighting what are the most important opportunities and risk at the company level uh, before we're, we go on to consider whether or not we want to invest in it. And, and that, uh, that information is disseminated across the whole team and both the ESG uh, as well as the financial analysts are, are, are communicating and, and um, participating in, in our overarching investment meeting where we're, we're looking at the merits of an idea, uh, both from a financial perspective as well as an ESG perspective. And then really after, the, the last part is after we built our portfolio, uh, we are talking to management to, to push them to raise the issues on the ESG side to improve upon their fundamentals and their sustainability. And our, our long-term focus, we think, is consistent with this ESG approach. We think that the ESG issues are most likely to be material or important to the bottom line, the longer your investment horizon. And we are typically looking to hold a company for three to five years. So more on the, the long-term end of the spectrum within the investment universe. Excellent. Thanks, Matt, for that overview. So the last thing I want to touch upon in our conversation is the role and the evolution of investor engagement and activism. Cheryl, maybe you can tackle it from the U.S. side as you're running the U.S. portfolio. And Matt, you can maybe comment for the international side, if you could. 
Uh, thank you, and I'm happy to do that. I just want to pile on to what Matt was saying about the engagement and the long-term focus being very, very important parts of that. And so part of us, part of our goal is to take a company that starts out as a reasonably good corporate actor with a great grasp of their opportunities and work with that company and push on the engagement to turn them into an, a better corporate actor with an even better grasp of those opportunities. And so, um, you know, Trillium and Boston Common have worked side by side for decades on the advocacy work that we do and the engagement work that we do. And I think that that, you know, is a feature of the engaged ESG universe of working together with others to kind of improve the outcomes overall. So that's one of the elements in terms of the evolution of investor engagement and activism is that investor engagement's been present from the various, very earliest days from the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility and some of the early resolutions on Department of Defense, on uh, the Sullivan principles in South Africa, on employee issues uh, coming through pension fund investors and the labor movement. And over time, the issues that investors have been concerned about have evolved, but broadly, they've concerned human rights, worker safety, environmental responsibility, diversity and inclusion, governance, and opportunities towards uh, better environmental activity. The tools have evolved because the early uses of shareholder proposals, which generated very low but persistent shareholder votes, we used to celebrate if we had a 2% vote or a 3% vote or a 4% vote, led eventually to greater awareness by management of the issues. If you keep coming back, it's that water wearing away a stone, even at the 4% level, uh, management eventually becomes willing to meet with the shareholders that are interested in this and becomes more willing to address the issues. So working together in coalition strengthens that investor position. Now, an interesting sidelight is that the takeover boom of the 1980s um, actually was a real benefit to ESG investors because in the 1980s, as management began to try and enshrine itself by putting in anti-takeover provisions, institutional investors became very concerned about this as sort of a, you know, and uh, grabbing of value for the management and not for the shareholders and began to start talking about how could they deal with this, submitting their own proposals and became interested in communicating among each other more freely. So in 1992, the SEC the, uh, overhauled the proxy solicitation process to allow greater communication. And we began to see coalitions of investors working together on common issues. Then in around uh, 2002, 2003, the uh, shareholder uh, proxy advising groups such as Glass-Lewis or ISS um, began to kind of put their toe in the water and start to think about the proposals that groups like Boston Common or Trillium Asset Management were bringing and began to actually recommend positive votes on some of the shareholder proposals, which kind of rocketed the shareholder votes from 4% to the 20s and 30s. And now we often see a vote that's over 50% of shareholders on a particular issue. In concert with this, there's also been a growing evolution of the importance of the proxy vote as an asset with the Department of Labor in the United States stating that that is an asset of the plan participants and the fiduciaries for that plan have to vote those proxies. But what's become important is 
they have to not only vote the proxies, they actually have to think about how they're voting the proxies and not just vote it reflexively with management. So that again has led to um, a bit more understanding and interest. So through all of this, the shareholder proposal is kind of the lever that gets the management to talk to you. It's the discussions with management and the engagement over time with management that maybe produces more management awareness, but the growing ability to do these shareholder proposals and talk with other shareholders, work in coalition with them has led to greater management willingness and ability to talk. And I'll turn it over to Matt to sort of talk about the international perspective. Great, thanks, Cheryl. I appreciate that. And it, it is different in the in uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, in some cases, shareholder rights are a little bit different. Uh, but as Cheryl brought up earlier in the conversation, I'm glad she did bring up the European Union because because we think that that Europe in general is really leading the world in a lot of these environmental, social, and governance issues. And and as Cheryl brought up the European Green Deal, which is the commitment by the European Union to get to a net zero uh, carbon economy uh, in just a, a few decades is, is really exciting and really started uh, this, we hope, race to the top for uh, other regions to improve upon their, their, um, their climate change performance. And so if you look at Europe, you, you have the, the consumer preferences, the regulatory structure, and importantly, corporate managements that are already looking at ESG issues and, and are, are trying to lead. And so our, our engagement efforts there are really focused on the relative positioning to keep pushing them to uh, achieve higher standards that the rest of the world can follow. Uh, and then when you when you leave Europe and head to Asia, you have a, a little bit of a different uh, type of um, environment. Uh, specifically, in, if you look at Japan, uh, Japanese companies tend to do pretty well on the environmental side. They're they're mindful of resource efficiency, and they uh, they are global competitors in a lot of uh, energy efficient products and uh, other environmental areas. Uh, however, on the governance and social factors, they tend to be lagging. So specifically, diversity uh, is is a is a challenge in places like Japan and Korea, where you see very few women in, in top management on the boards. And, um, and so that, that would be an area where we're really pushing uh, for uh, incremental improvement in Japan. It, it's, uh, it's a surprisingly um, relative, within the country, relatively uh, favorable to have just one woman on the board is, is kind of the, the low bar that Japanese corporations uh, are, are setting compared to Europe where you have 30 to 40% uh, typically of women on the board. Um, and then there's other issues, I think, with regard to governance, we're looking for um, there, you can find more family ownership and, and potential conflicts of interest, especially as you, you think about uh, uh, Korea. And then as we move on to emerging markets, again, you have different areas where uh, companies in a lot of ways are, are trying to uh, get to their, their, their brand equity to rise to the global standards and therefore are looking for advice from investors like ourselves uh, as to how they can get to, to really the, the uh, best practices in a lot of these issues. So we're, we really play more of a consultant role, uh, again, to, to raise the bar uh, for our shareholders, or sorry, for our corporations, uh, our investments, as well as the industry as a whole. Well, I'll tell you, at John Hancock, we're always looking for ways to help clients build better portfolios. And when I think back about what we covered with where ESG started, how it's evolved, where it's delivering performance for shareholders, it's delivering better outcomes for the businesses, it's really making the world a better place. 
and clients are truly open to the opportunity and are looking forward in their portfolio. I think ESG has an excellent place in a portfolio to, to deliver a better outcome. Matt and Cheryl, I want to thank you so much for sharing your insights and your expertise. It's been wonderful. For our audience, if you want to see more, please visit our website, jhinvestments.com. There's a lot of great content about both firms and about ESG investing in general. And if you want to hear more other interesting topics, please subscribe to our podcast, Portfolio Intelligence, on iTunes. You can also connect on our website and other popular um, podcast um, download options. Everybody, thanks for listening to the show. Have a great day. Thank you. This podcast is being brought to you by John Hancock Investment Management Distributors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker, are subject to change as market and other conditions warrant, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment strategy discussed will be successful or achieve any particular level of results. Any economic or market performance information is historical and is not indicative of future results, and no forecasts are guaranteed. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. ESG funds carry many individual risks, including some that are unique to each fund. Please see each fund's perspectives to learn all of the risks associated with each investment. The fund's ESG policy could cause it to perform differently than similar funds that do not have such a policy.